You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this seventh lecture in our series on spiritual theology, I'd like to take up where we left off, dealing with some elements from the purgative way, that is, that process of purification and purgation. There's a wonderful line from St. Augustine's treatise on the Gospel of John that John Paul II quotes in Veritatis Splendor. Augustine says, freedom from crimes is only the beginning of freedom. And I think what he means, and what the Pope certainly understands by that phrase, is that there are ways in which the doing of any serious misdeeds, instead of freeing us, very much cribs, cabins, and confines us. It's much in the way, for instance, that when one tells a lie, one may be free of the immediate scrape one has gotten into, but on the other hand, one is quickly bound to remember to whom one told the lie and to keep up the appearances lest one later on be trapped. And so with each element of misdeed, one finds oneself more and more confined and not liberated. But on the other hand, Augustine is insisting, with freedom from such misdeed, freedom from crime, one has at least the beginning of freedom. One is not constrained by the immediate constraints that the crime impelled, imposed, but instead one has the possibilities, the beginnings of real liberty. And in the spiritual life, so too, and and this is, I think, Augustine's point, that it is progressively a matter of freedom from sin, freedom from offense against God, and yet that is only the beginning of the life and growth that needs to take place, so that one eventually comes to the real freedom of living as the children of God, a freedom in the Holy Spirit. But this freedom from crime is only the beginning, and the rest of our lecture today, in lecture number seven, considers that progressive purification that liberates us by the grace of God and by our cooperation with that grace from some of the ways in which We have, in various ways, confined our spirits, perhaps by some untoward habit. Progress in the spiritual life, then, is, I think, rightly to be understood as a journey, a journey to holiness that begins with sanctifying grace and then continues by seeking the path of perfection in Christ, that path which he commands us in the passage from the Gospel of Matthew that I quoted at the beginning. You must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In all process toward purification, we need to remember that the initiative of divine grace and then the ongoing support of divine grace is something that comes from God. And it comes from God who is dwelling within the soul as within a living temple of his grace. But it's supported by ongoing actual graces, supported by the infusion of virtues, supported by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And yet, amid all this support, we need ongoing purification. And this is, I think, the main reason why so many spiritual writers have talked about the purgative way. It begins with a conversion from sin, but then there is the need toward the restoration and the rectification of our various disordered loves and our inclinations to follow the passions, the various ways in which we can fall into temptation. They need constantly to be resisted. Virtue needs to be sought and we need to allow the healing grace of Christ really to restore us. 
It is, I think, for this reason that spiritual writers of all generations have so regularly commended the effort to purify our passions, purify our senses, external and internal, as well as purify the intellect and will. So what our topic for today will be is the purification of the senses, the purification of the passions, and the purification of our rational faculties. This is all a very much a part of the portion of spiritual theology called ascetical theology. Unfortunately, sometimes today this part of spiritual theology is frowned upon, as if any effort to curb our passions or the will were somehow necessarily Jansenist. Quite to the contrary, the purpose of actively seeking to purify our human powers, our passions, our intellect and will, is a matter of submitting them to the rule of reason, and particularly the rule of reason enlightened by faith. I think doing so is to take better account, and even to emphasize in an appropriate way, the often ignored effects of original sin and those ongoing disturbances that afflict our spirit. It's also, I think, in a very realistic way, a healthy way, to take note of the infinite capacity that we human beings have to rationalize various misdeeds and misconduct that we've performed. Sometimes an inclination that one sees even in some parts of psychology today to try to explain away what seems normal simply because everybody's doing it as if it were necessarily right and justified. Rather, from the point of view of a sound spiritual theology, everything about us whatsoever needs to be submitted to Christ for healing, for purification, and eventually for return to the Father, for the giving glory to God as we described in the very beginning of this course, which is the main goal of the spiritual life. The first part then is purifying the senses. We have already dealt back in lecture six with such mortifications as the custody of the senses, when we learn to have better control over how we use our eyesight or how we use our hearing, not only with regard to things that are possibly sinful or our temptations towards sin, but even things that are permissible. There's a healthy practice of the custody of the senses that leads to a certain self-control and self-mastery that could very well be pleasing to God if offered to Him and to His grace. It is important, I think, to remember when we talk about custody of the senses, to remember that practices of this sort are not done because of some secret conviction that worldly objects or bodily pleasures are fundamentally sinful. That is not the point at all. Rather, the point is that there is simply a need to gain control, to gain mastery over one's passions, those movements in our spirit that usually begin by some stimulation that is outside of our control, but then quickly take us over. In fact, the very reason why the passions are called the passions is not so much that we're entirely passive, but simply that the movement within our spirit that is the passion of anger or the passion of fear or passion of lust is something that begins when we weren't particularly choosing it when we weren't particularly even noticing it. And it begins to grow in us, and we're passive at least in the beginning of that movement of spirit. But we do have choices to make about it, and so it's inappropriate to think of these things as things to which we are simply and entirely passive and always subject. We have the power of will by which we can step in and choose to follow along the course the passion has directed in us, or can choose to alter that course. When a practice like self-denial is done with Christian prudence, for example, when we're choosing to limit 
a certain legitimate pleasure that we might be taking, we do so precisely in the effort to gain greater freedom in order to give all of ourselves over to the glory of God and to have a certain freedom from control by the passions which could lead us to do things that we are not really anxious to do in our better moments. It is a matter of not surrendering to the passion or the pleasure lest they enslave us, but rather putting all these things at the disposal of the Holy Spirit. Hence, from the point of view of spiritual theology, when we're trying to think of how to understand this rightly in Christ, it is a matter of doing so, of learning this practice of self-control, not just for the sake of the freedom we gain, but primarily for the sake of imitating Christ, who was willing to suffer on our behalf. Now, to consider the senses in particular, it's helpful here to remember some points that probably you have studied from other courses in ICU, namely the courses in human nature. Namely, that in a Thomistic analysis of the human person and of the powers that are part of our very nature, Thomists generally divide our sense powers into a set of internal senses and a set of external senses. The external senses are the things that are very familiar to us, our sight, our hearing, our powers of touch and taste and feel. But there are also, for the Thomistic analysis of human psychology, a set of internal powers. The names that are usually given to them are memory, imagination, the estimative sense, and the unifying sense. By memory, one is thinking of the record that is within us of all the various sensations that we have experienced. By imagination, we don't mean precisely what the term sometimes means in common discourse, the creative imagination, when we're really being very interestingly creative and novel in what we produce, but rather we mean something much more simple, namely the way in which images stay within us, even when not particularly linked to particular episodes in memory. It's the sort of thing I think that any of us experiences. We're trying to study or trying to concentrate in prayer or even just trying to have a conversation with somebody and an image will come to mind, perhaps a visual image or it could be an auditory image. And the image might come as a sort of distraction for us that we're trying to pray and we end up thinking about something else, having a good daydream. Or we're trying to study and our mind is perhaps on a football game or something. And it's not just the use of memory of historical record, but it could be images that are simply images of things or of colors or of events or of sounds or of feelings that come to us this, of course, being very useful. It's a part of our makeup and part of the way in which we understand and part of the way in which we can be creative with the creative imagination in the more highly technical sense. The third and fourth internal sense powers, by the estimative sense, we mean that about us as human beings which is closest to instinct with the animals. For example, if we're walking along a street at night and hear a noise on the fence behind us and the goose pimples that arise on our hands, well, that estimate of sense is we've noticed something fearful or sometimes our reaction to a change in temperature. Anytime when we sense danger, it's not necessarily a thoroughly intellectual process and yet it's something where we're sensing something and reacting and responding to it. The fourth sense, internal sense, that the Thomists refer to is called the central sense or the unifying sense. It's how we can put together the sounds we hear with the sights we see. And so that you can imagine that the thing that's been talking to you now for so long is the same as the blackly colored object that you're seeing in front of us. And we put together that these come from one and the same object, even though we've received it through a different medium and a different sense power. Now, with regard to spiritual theology, I would like to concentrate on just the first two, namely on memory and imagination. 
Because these happen to us and recur for us, come into the presence of our minds, sometimes without our choosing to do so, they can be enormously influential to us. The things that we do spontaneously remember, as well as the things that we choose to remember, and the images that simply come before the mind without our particularly summoning to the mind. Both of those things are experiences that we have that need to be purified because they can be sources of difficulty and trouble because they are so much the result of experiences in the past that we would sometimes like to correct and submit to the grace of Christ. It's important to remember the background rootedness of this portion of spiritual theology in a good sound philosophy of the human person. All of our knowing begins with something that we have received through the senses, some image, whether a visual image, an auditory image, a tactile, or some other sensory image that we've come from, that we've experienced, and when it comes into us, the mind sets to work and it can control, it can abstract, it can understand, it can penetrate these various images. But there's nothing like a good image, and any good storyteller and any good artist knows precisely the great power of images they are something that are easy to grasp and something that sometimes can get the point of a story. I often find when I'm trying to give a sermon and I've thought a particularly good image, it can really help in getting the point across. Alternately, it can sometimes leave a person with just that good story and they don't even get the punchline or the point of what it is I'm trying to say. But stories and images can be very, very powerfully compelling because of the way the human person is made, because we are composites of body and soul. It is, I think, precisely because of the enormous power of images and then their development in stories and in pictures, it is the tremendous importance and power of what we have seen and what we have heard and what we have felt that is what makes the memory and the imagination so vastly important and needing to be purified for the sake of the spiritual life. In prayer, as well as in study, as well as simply in personal relations, what often impedes us are temptations and distractions, even difficulties in staying recollected. And so throughout the spiritual life, there will be various kinds of real opportunities as well as real problems that arise from the memory. Let me take just two examples and work with them by way of exemplification of this whole point. Sometimes people are bothered by extremely hurtful memories, things that we cannot seem to forgive, things that we cannot seem to forget. We heard once the definition of Irish Alzheimer's. It's forgetting everything except the grudges. And I think that's something that doesn't afflict just the Irish, but afflicts the Polish like myself, but it inflicts all of us. Namely, that there are things that we get into our noggin and we just cannot seem to forgive because they keep coming up. Well, part of the strategy that is needed is learning how to discipline the memory so that we start to call things by their proper name. And if it is, for example, a grudge or a hurt feeling, we have to, if we're ever to purify this, learn to identify it by its proper name and then to deal with it and submit it to the power of intellect and will. Likewise, I think that there are the kind of memories and imaginations that are very much associated with lust. And these are the things which titillate us, the things that arouse pleasure in us, and often they can be associated with particular memories and with particular images. 
And so part of the necessity here of healing the powers of sensation, in particular powers of memory and imagination, we'll be learning to deal with these things and call them by their proper name as quickly as we can so that we can then make a good judgment and move on rather than having these memories or these imaginations be things which could entice us to further sin or simply weigh us down by the fact that we seem to be enslaved to them and cannot shake them up. What are we to do precisely? Well, I think in terms of disciplinary practice, the things that spiritual writers over the ages have emphasized within spiritual theology are, first of all, custody of the senses, that is, learning to have a little bit more discrimination about what we take in, what we look at. And this includes both the sights and sounds that come to us simply as we walk through life, but it's also a matter of care with which one decides what one is going to read what films, what television one is going to see. A very useful practice I have found, and I think that many spiritual writers have frequently recommended, is the habit of moving on from a distraction as soon as one notices it. Frequently I think that sometimes it's these images are very entertaining to us. Even if they're some of the harder images, the griefs and the hurts on which we like to stay in a grudge, or the lustful temptations and the things that arouse us sexually, it's important to move on from them quickly. Sometimes it's a matter of finding something else to do and distracting ourselves a little bit by learning to think about something else, learning to take an interest in something else, and to have something ready at hand into which we can now plunge our imagination and our mind and our consciousness precisely so that we can break the hold of something over us and not let it have mastery over us. With regard to the memory of sins in the past, because sometimes these can be troublesome to people, sometimes one can think that one is not forgiven or one can go through the memory of the sin. It's often a very confusing experience because sometimes it's a matter of thinking through what actually happened again as if we're tempted to enter into it again. Sometimes it's a matter of just thinking that we have not been adequately healed from it and the memory turns us up afresh. Here I'd like to recommend the use of a particular passage from Scripture, namely from the prophet Micah. It's near the end of the prophet Micah and he says, God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And I think that that promotes and prompts a certain good spiritual exercise that when we have really brought something to confession and we have expressed our sorrow for it, and yet when we find that we're still plagued by it, it can be very helpful to think for just a moment of this passage of Micah and perhaps to put whatever it is that's bothering us, the thing that continues to return to our memory, put it in a good lockbox, like a toolbox, and then wrap a nice chain around it and then toss it over our heads into the depths of the sea letting God take care of it. And what that's supposed to do, I think, is to say, He will deal with it. And then what I like to recommend, if I may be so bold, is to add something to the prophet Micah. I'd take, at least in my imagination, or perhaps really an actual physical object, take a piece of paper or cardboard and write on there, no fishing, and then pound it in. And what that's supposed to mean for us in the future as we ever get tempted to look back upon this particular memory once we've confessed it and really handed it on to the Lord is not only that we should not again enter into whatever it is that has tempted us, but that we should not enter into again even to thinking about it. It's an ascetical practice choosing not to dwell on a memory, but having that no fishing sign perhaps can help us to remember that we should not be dwelling in some appropriate ways. 
There's also, of course, the very extremely helpful instruction that the Lord gives about forgiving. Perhaps you'll remember that passage when St. Peter is asking him, Lord, how many times ought I to forgive the neighbor who has wronged me? Seven times? And the Lord says, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. I suppose it's possible that one brother or sister of ours could have offended us 490 times, but my personal suspicion on that matter is that it doesn't refer to 490 offenses. I think it could very well refer to just one or two offenses that we've thought about 490 times. And what the Lord is recommending is that every time we start to think about it, what we need to do right at the time is to say, no, I, I forgive. I may have to alter my relationships with that person because I can't stay in a relationship that will prove sinful for him or her or for me. But what I have to do is to right at the time forgive and move on and that this is what the Lord's instructions to St. Peter have us in mind. It can also help here to cultivate a habit of thankfulness to God for blessings received so that instead of meditating on hurts, we learn to move our attention on to something else and in particular to blessing God for his particular blessings to us. When it comes to the purification of our passions, here too I think we've got some of the same strategy in mind. The passions are things like loves and fears, the hatreds and the great attractions that we feel, and it is crucial here to call these things to our attention by their proper name as soon as we possibly can, precisely because the passions well up in us and start to get us moving, whether in attraction toward a good perceived or in a certain aversion toward a certain hateful thing, a certain evil thing that we're experiencing, perhaps even an anger at some difficult thing that we cannot easily escape. One of the crucial things to remember is that the passions by themselves are not evil. They're put in us by God precisely to give us the energy to carry out whatever it is with energy and enthusiasm and real boldness, whatever decisions of the will are appropriate and are godly and are virtuous. But the passions can easily enslave us. The passions can easily overcome us. Hence, the crucial task in cultivating the spiritual life is learning how to identify the passions, learning how to identify what is it that's moving within us as quickly as we can, so that we can bring it to the judgment of our reason illumined by faith. And to ask ourselves, is this something that is a holy passion, a holy anger, like our Lord himself experienced and witnessed for us when he was in the temple and when he cleansed the temple of those who were making it into simply a marketplace and a place of thievery. And there was a holy anger to him. But at the same time, it is not the sort of anger that just overwhelms us, not the sort of thing which now suddenly takes control of us. And hence what we need to do is to call it by its proper name and to deal with it relatively quickly. The simple remedies that are supportive of this include getting good food and good rest, good exercise, that having a sort of healthy body, mens sana and corpore sano, a healthy mind and a healthy body, can help us to deal with this very authentically. And yet, what we must do also, and very, very important to the spiritual life, is to cultivate the habit of praying specifically for help in dealing with our passions. That as we grow older and find that we're not just becoming older in years, but becoming a little more so, that for all of our efforts to try to deal with this simply by the power of our own will, we know that this is 
probably only going to be of certain measure of success, and that what we must do is to ask our Lord precisely for the infusion of virtue and for the rectification of any passions that are disordered in us or any weaknesses that are abiding. Finally, there is the subject of the purification of intellect and will. These things which are so very specifically typical of human nature, namely our powers of thinking and our powers of choosing, these too need the careful purification. Among the things that spiritual writers have rightly recommended in this order are first the overcoming of ignorance. This is a matter of careful studying of the truths of our faith and pondering their meaning. I find at least that frequently people will claim to have difficulties of their faith, difficulties in matters of morality for instance, acting as though their own conscience were superior to what the church has disclosed upon great reflection, reflection upon the scriptures and the life of Christ. And so that much of the effort here of purifying the intellect means cultivating the virtue of docility, really studying the truths of our faith and studying the explanations that are given. Here I find a tremendously important resource both in the Catechism of the Church as well as in some of the writings on moral theology that Pope John Paul II has done. His book on love and responsibility is dealing especially with matters of love and of sexuality. His writings on fundamental moral theology in Veritatis Splendor are enormously clear and I think quite accessible to people who will give them the time for studying and understanding the reasons for why the Church holds what the Church holds. But secondly, there's also that interplay between the intellect and the will on the one hand and the passions on the other. And so it's a matter sometimes of quickly getting rid of useless and vain thoughts that are aroused in us by the imagination and learning instead how to consider things that are much more useful in the life of salvation. One of the great virtues here is the virtue of docility and the virtue of humility. Docility is the virtue of being teachable, being able to be instructed, and I think this is extremely important. And then there's that wonderful virtue of humility. Let me refer you to a moment to the works of Bernard of Clairvaux, who has in the Middle Ages a wonderful book. It's kind of the first of the 12 step books that I know in history. It's called On the Degrees, or On the Steps of Humility. And he defines humility as a reverent love for the truth. What he means by that, I think, is that one should love the truth so much that one will revere it and one will, by one's intellect and one's will, put oneself in conformity with the truth. So whether it, for instance, is in a compliment that is paid, one needn't deny a compliment, but one can simply say, thank you, praise God, I'm glad that I'm able to do these things for the Lord, and then, having accepted the truth, moved in reverence to give praise to God for it. Likewise, if there is a matter of having to be corrected, having to be instructed by somebody. Those acts of fraternal charity come at great cost and great risk because I think all of us like to be like and the temptation is, is to be wimpish in that sort. But fraternal correction and fraternal charity means that we ourselves have to cultivate a docility and a willingness to accept the correction of a wise person precisely so that we can learn and profit and grow in Christian perfection. Finally, I think there's the strategy of appropriate detachment from some of the goods of this world that could very well bring us to an excessive and an inordinate love. Here it's a matter of trying constantly to submit in confession, in good spiritual direction, in spiritual conversation with others, and in appropriate personal meditation, a sense of understanding where our attachments, where our loves, where our interests are, so that we can turn all of these things to the Lord. 
And when we cultivate this, we will be moving toward the Christian perfection, toward that real ultimate abandonment to divine providence of which St. Francis de Sales and Pierre de Cassade like to speak, that in which we submit our will entirely to the will of the Father and seek as Jesus Christ himself did to return all things to God our Father out of love. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.